Hello and welcome to part two of the RCP Medicine podcast with Professor Sir Michael Marmot on health inequalities. In part one, we heard about the relationships between social economic status, hierarchy and culture on health outcomes and that there is a social gradient for health which shows that health inequity clearly exists for most of our population with a direct relationship between social economic status and health outcomes. We've heard about data to show this in England and in many other places for many years now. Despite knowing this, outcomes we aim to improve in England following the first Marmot review have been found not to improve 10 years on and if anything have worsened. This has subsequently been followed as we're all aware by a global coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic and now rising living costs relative to wages. We continue our conversation with Sir Professor Michael Marmot, Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Institute of Health Equity at UCL on health inequalities about how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted our health outcomes and looking to the future. Here's part two. Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine podcast. My name is Jasmine Lee and I'm a palliative care physician and an RCP Clinical Education Fellow. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Sir Michael Marmot, Director of the Institute of Health Equity at UCL. Hello, Michael. Hello. In terms of where we are now and um, looking forwards at what appears to be a very um, scary uh, looking winter for many people with this cost of living crisis that is happening. Um, We're seeing um, people having to make very difficult decisions about the rising costs of staples such as foods as simple to us as bread, milk and eggs and energy prices going up uh, multifold um, since the beginning of the year as well as travel costs of which some people are very reliant not only to get about but also to get to to the work and occupations. Um, what, what do you think um, this is going to have? I mean we we haven't yet um, we haven't yet heard or seen um, precisely what interventions are going to take place, um, but certainly there is enough concern with what we're seeing in terms of the figures and in terms of the rates of inflation compared to people's wages and so on. How do you think the cost of living crisis is going to affect um, what already is a very uh, bleak picture for social um, inequities following both the review and, and post-pandemic? Badly. Before the cost of living crisis was severe, you will have heard the rhetoric from some of our politicians that poor people only have themselves to blame. Um, They've got poor dietary habits. Well, it's because they're ignorant. They don't know how to cook. I, says any number of upper class people, would do wonderfully well on 30p a day. I could cook and feed my family and so on. We published data from the Food Foundation that for people in the bottom 10% of household income, to follow the healthy eating advice, they would need to spend 74% of their income on food. It's not the poor who are to blame for their unhealthy eating, 
It's their poverty. Well, that's going to get worse with the cost of living crisis. I wrote a think piece. I was invited to write a comment in The Guardian. And I privilege dignity. Dignity is fundamental to who we are and taking our place in society. One way to threaten people's dignity is to take away the means to lead a dignified life. It is undignified to have resort to a food bank to feed your family. It's undignified to have to wear two overcoats indoors to stay warm. It's undignified to have to cancel a children's birthday party because of cost. And the threats to dignity from the cost of living crisis will expand. This is a health crisis. What is a cost of living crisis is a health crisis. People in cold homes will die. Their children will suffer. And if they can't afford healthy food, people will eat unhealthy food. And in a country like Britain, that means increased obesity. It doesn't mean people dying of starvation could, but it means eating calorie-dense cheap food rather than more expensive healthy food. So it's going to be really serious. And we can't offer platitudes. Platitudes won't solve this problem. And there are two parts to the cost of living crisis, the cost and people's resources. And the potentially two approaches, and we probably need both of them, of dealing with costs. So, for example, with energy, um, is there a way to limit costs? It turns out that energy prices seem to be more inflated in the UK than in most European countries. Is that to do with the, the nature of our privatized energy system? It might be. So one way of dealing with the cost of living crisis is the cost. And the other way is with people's resources, how much money they have. And I think we need a combination. But it's a health crisis. Yes, I agree with you. It's um, it's very much going to be um, something that I think will be seeing as healthcare professionals play out directly um, and certainly from you know the specialty that I work within we have the privilege of looking after patients in their own homes and you know we have seen firsthand how people's own home environment can impact their their health their symptoms and as you said their dignity and their ability to lead independent and healthy lives or as healthy and independent as they can you mentioned some um differences between our country and other countries. Are there any areas of good practice or strategies that you've seen in other countries that you think would be helpful um, in terms of our own situation here and the cost of living crisis that could be considered? A great deal. If we look, let's go back before the cost of living crisis. Let's go back to what I documented in my 10 years on report. <clears throat> the slowdown in improvement in life expectancy in the UK 
was more marked than in any other rich country except the United States and Iceland. So there was something really bad going on in the UK that was more severe that was, than was going on in other rich countries, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, except the US and Iceland. Wow. Let's look at what those countries do. So there's all this talk about cutting taxes. We are a low tax country. According to IMF figures, government receipts amount to 36% of gross domestic product in the UK, 36%. In Finland and France, 52%. In Scandinavia, other Scandinavian countries, the high 40s, Germany, all these countries where among the, the US is low, we're 36%, they're about 31%. So public expenditure seems to be really important. Let's take expenditure on early childhood, children aged 0 to 5. The average for OECD countries, the rich countries, is about $6,000 per child. In Norway, it's $12,000 to $14,000 per child. The average is six. In the UK, it's $4,000. In the US, it's $3,000. So we're below average. Child poverty, we're above average. These are political decisions. This is not something that's intrinsic to our economy. These are political decisions. We've decided that we're tolerant of high levels of child poverty. The US is tolerant of even higher levels of child poverty. We've decided not to spend very much on early child development and education. That's a political decision. When you say, can we learn from other countries? Yeah, we can learn from almost any other country. We could learn from Korea, from Norway, from Finland, from Germany. We could learn from a lot of other countries um, that actually see expenditure on improving the quality of life for their citizens as something important that government should do. And we don't. And we're suffering as a result. Wow, that's an incredibly sobering um, fact and, and thought there. I think, you know, when we think about child poverty, it's often something we would assume and think about that's happening to other countries and not within our within our own country. And I think many people um, would like to think that our country does prioritise education and, and child health and, and development and those sorts of things. So that is certainly something. Um, but that's not what the figures show. Yes, that yes. Yeah. What people like would like us to believe, but it's not what the data should be show. Absolutely. And I think that's the really really real power of the data and, and the fantastic work that you've been doing over many years is that um the data um and the evidence speak for themselves and they are they are, as you mentioned, they're not aligned to any particular um 
uh, political pol policy or situation, they are reflective of what we're seeing um, in the here and now and previously in the past as well. There's um, a, there seems to be a gap between what we're what we can find out, what we can know, and what we can see in the data, and really affecting positively health outcomes for people. Where do you see that we can make a change, both from, you mentioned kind of policy level, but are there other things that we can do as individuals, as um, communities, as societies that might be able to impact and change this for the better, Michael? Yeah, I mean, a version of your question that I'm often asked is, you've been producing these reports for a very long time and government doesn't seem to be taking them seriously. Aren't you unhappy? And the answer is no, I'm not unhappy. I've give ev given evidence to the Scottish Parliament. I've talked to the Northern Ireland Minister of Health. I talk to people in the Welsh government um, frequently. It's only the government in Westminster that's been ignoring this. And we're working with local government. Greater Manchester, well, firstly, Coventry declared itself a Marmot City in 2010. When I produced my 2010 report, Coventry said, right, we'll do that. Then Greater Manchester invited us to work with them. And we produced a report, Build Back Fairer, in Greater Manchester. Then Cheshire and Merseyside, we produced a report for them, Altogether Fairer, in Cheshire and Merseyside. Lancashire and Cumbria will produce a report in the next month or two for Lancashire and Cumbria. We've been working all around the country, um, in Luton, in Waltham Forest. Um, we're doing work for Greater London. Uh, Gwent wants to be the first Marmot region in Wales. The Southwest region has invited us in, and on and on. That's really exciting because it means that we don't have to wait. I, I do want central government to do things, no question, but we don't have to wait for them finally to act on the evidence because there's a great deal of interest from integrated care systems, from local government, from the voluntary and community sector of people who really want to make a difference. And we're very happy to work with them. So I'm really excited by that. And then, of course, there's a great deal of interest in many other countries. Yeah, that's really brilliant that's to hear and um, really looking forward to um, hearing more in the future about how those, um, those joint working uh, teams have gone. You mentioned um, the five policy changes uh, that you put forward in the original Marmot review. Do you see the priorities that we should be working on being the same moving forward? Are there any other things that you think we should also be including and focusing on in addition to those? Um, and I appreciate that, you know, the, the review didn't find that we'd made good progress in those five areas, but just interested to know whether if you were going to present you know, the policies now, whether you would stick to those five, make changes, whether you think we need to be expanding more or actually trying to focus more stepwise if we've not made good progress over the last decade and, and so on? So we confused the world slightly 
because I had six domains of recommendations in my 2010 review. We only addressed five of them in the 2020, but I think all six are important and we've added two. So let me just recap what the six were. Give every child the best start in life. Number two, education and lifelong learning. Number three, employment and working conditions. Number four, everyone should have at least the minimum income necessary for a healthy life. Number five, healthy and sustainable places in which to live and work. And the sixth one, which we didn't address in the 2020 review, was lifestyle, um, social determinants of behaviours. And in relation to your question, I stand by those six, and I think the analysis was correct, and it hasn't seriously been questioned. We need action on those six, but we've added two. And the two we've added uh, deal with racism, discrimination, and their consequences. And the eighth one is pursue the climate agenda and health equity agenda at the same time. So everything has to be put in the context of dealing with the climate crisis. And dealing with the climate crisis, you need to make sure you don't make inequities worse. And dealing with health equity has to be done in the context of dealing with climate change. That's really interesting, Michael, to hear how those two um, other priorities have come in as well. And yes, I agree with you. I think that's really important um, and making sure that uh, both of those things are, are things that affect society. And we've seen in the last few years how those issues have been gaining momentum and and impacting the health of people as well um so that's that's very um that's very logical that they're also things that we need to move forward on as well um michael i was wondering um you've done a lot of different work and reports as you've mentioned over um, the years. What's sort of the plans moving forward? Do you do you have a kind of plan to do a further review in a set number of years, or is it something that we need to really monitor year on year, given the trends that we've been seeing, or is it something that actually that you know the actions really need to be um, initiated now and you know as much as we can use the data we really need to see some strategies some actions some outcomes being achieved what's your thoughts on on the future going forward um i was at a gathering in early july um, which is not the kind of thing i usually go to and one senior person in the system said to me Oh, social determinants of health are everywhere. You must be so happy. What are you going to do next? <laughs> it's not quite how it feels to me. Um, there's a great deal still to do. No question about it. Um, I'm really excited by the take up we've had from local government. I'm excited by the interest we've had from some other countries. I'd like more. Um, and it's going to be very important to document the outcomes of these actions. So it's not enough to have policies. It's important to have policies, but we need to see that they're being implemented 
and having good effects as a result of the implementation. So there's a great deal to do to keep it on the agenda. Um, and I, I think about the task as having three components, research, training, and policy and practice and implementation. And they're linked so that although all our recent reports are very much about policy and practice and implementation, they throw up things that we don't know, which should feed back into the research agenda. Mm. Um, and training is getting more people involved in research and in action. So it's a huge agenda. I'm delighted that I think we've made progress uh, as the thrust of your questions. It is, health equity is on the agenda now in a way that it wasn't even a decade ago, but certainly three decades ago or four decades ago when I started doing this. It is on the agenda now. Social determinants of health are on the agenda now. Um, that was an unknown term before we started working on it. That's great. But now we want to see the action necessary to improve health and reduce health inequalities, promote health equity. A great deal still to do. Yeah, I agree, I agree with you, Michael. A great deal still to do, but nonetheless, really important work that needs to be addressed and needs to be done. And as we mentioned before, work that is impactful across the whole population um, and across the, the, the lifetime of, of our patients and the individuals that we, we live, uh, live and work amongst as well. Um, Michael, thank you so much for sharing so much of your wonderful um, experience, your knowledge um, and your, your uh, expertise with us today. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners would have found this talk um, fantastically uh, insightful and um, really riveting to, to listen to. If they were interested in finding out more or in doing something or being involved themselves, what would your advice to them be um, for someone perhaps like me who, who knows maybe a little bit about what's, um, what's been happening, some of the work or has you know, really seen the effects of the pandemic on the on on healthcare inequity. Where would you advise, um, perhaps starting out or finding out more information about about this? Well, all our reports are on the Institute of Health Equity website, so do look at those. Dare I suggest? Why not read my book, The Health Gap? Uh, that. I wrote that in 2015, published it in 2015, based on the experience of chairing the WHO Commission on Social Determinants of Health and the Marmot Review. Um, and I don't feel a strong need to revise it. I think what I said there, I stand by, um, and that lays it out. So I would recommend my own book uh, but also the reports that are on the Institute of Health Equity website. And one very welcome development is that the Royal College of Physicians took the lead 
in getting the other medical royal colleges to join a health inequalities alliance. And then lots of other health organizations said, we want to join. The Health Inequalities Alliance now has more than 200 members. So it's on the agenda of um, medical charities, the medical royal colleges. Uh, so there's ample opportunity for people to learn from their medical royal colleges, as well as reading my book, The Health Gap, and looking at our website for our reports. That's fantastic, Michael. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, our conversation today and I hope you have too. Um, thank you very much to our listeners for listening to our podcast today. And I hope that you've enjoyed um, this conversation. My pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed part two of Michael Marmot and that you've taken away some valuable understanding and insight of the real challenges that are facing us before, today and in the future when it comes to healthcare inequalities. Like me, many of you would have entered medicine aiming to help and improve people's lives and do so on a daily basis. But we increasingly see and know that healthy outcomes are something that we can't just achieve through direct treatment and care of illnesses and afflictions alone. It's been evident to us during these last couple of years during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's likely to be a reality check we'll see in our clinical environments if our social economic climate continues through to this winter and beyond. Thank you for joining us. Have a good day wherever you are and see you next time on the RCP Medicine podcast. <laughs>